0: Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week we are talking about words and actions in the Mass. What do we say? What do we do? What do our gestures mean during the Mass? And i got to say, some really great things came out of our conversation. And again, Chris and Dennis answer another email uh, submitted by a listener. So without further ado, Episode 5 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy.
1: I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy?
2: And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's
1: pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep.
0: The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. So, yeah, so last time we talked about signs and symbols, um, and now we're going to talk about words and actions.
1: Which are, in fact, signs and symbols. All right,
0: that's great. I think that's it. We should go to the emails then? Or? All right. No, we have a lot to, no, we have a lot that. to say about <laughs> Those are hard.
2: Because okay. the word it, it operates at a number of levels. Christ is called the Word of the Father, and he spoke the Word, and the Word became flesh, and it's kind of... And uh, dwelt among us. Exactly. How can a word dwell among you? Chris, you're smart. Say something about that.
1: Well, you guys are nailing all the main points. No, no, I'm just repeating things I've heard before. That's what I do.
2: Be a mystagogical
1: catechist.
2: Catechist, right now. Okay.
1: Well, we said last time about signs and symbols, right? So these are like verbal symbols, Um, and what uh, we said about signs and symbols and sacraments when it comes to the liturgy is that all of them have uh, a particular res sacramenti which is Jesus Christ. The reality of every liturgical sign and symbol and sacrament is, in the end, Jesus himself. And this is true, too, when it comes to words and actions, and but in a real particular way with the words, because I think there's a especial consonance, I can use that word, uh, between the words we use and the word which is Jesus. I mean, the word almost seems to be a really privileged uh, sacramental expression of Christ, because he calls himself the word and that's one of the one of the words that the church uses to describe him is that from the very beginning uh, or even before there was a beginning uh, in the trinity itself you know maybe we should back up a little bit when when the church talks about finding the meaning of the liturgy signs and symbols in the divine pedagogy of salvation or another word for that is economy of salvation and economy uh, in this context, in, in its original context, means the management of the oikos, the household. The man- right, the management of a household. Is that the yogurt? Uh, yeah, the, it would mean the same thing. Oh, yeah, oikos yes. yogurt would mean, uh, I suppose, uh, house. So I am on it today. Yeah, you're you're uh, batting a thousand so far. So <laughs> one for one, one if for the one. Executives are listening. Please yeah. send us some uh,
2: <laughs> so, some sample oikos. Yogurt. So
1: today, when we hear the word economy, we associate it probably with. Uh, uh, so home economics. class. Yeah. Well, that's its original sense, home uh, economics. sense is that home economics. That's what is you think of right away, is home economics? <laughs> well, that's redundant, oh, Come isn't on, that Home it? economics. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, it is redundant, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's like an ATM machine. Exactly. <laughs> nice. ATM, that's right. A pin number, you know. <laughs> you guys are good. Mm-hmm. But originally, economics means this management of a household. And uh, the catechism will say that... Uh, 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 in its, in its history of its thinking, is that this is uh, related to uh, what, it, what it calls uh, theology. So theology and economy are related. It says that theology, strictly speaking, refers to God's innermost self uh, in the divine life of the Trinity, whereas economics is how God works outside of himself. And the two things are, are related, you know, as a person sort of is in himself, so he uh, acts outwardly. They're related. Okay. And it's the same with uh, with God. So, in the divine pedagogy of salvation or the economy of salvation, there's really something that's a precursor to that, and that is theology, strictly speaking, how God is in Himself the relationship of the divine persons uh, to each other, and what the uh, I think it's this document that calls uh, it's called the General Directory on Catechesis. Uh, maybe it's elsewhere too. Says that uh, it speaks of this hierarchy of divine truths, right? So our whole faith is is, is a series of, uh, of of revealed and reasonable mysteries, but there's one that's at the top, and that is the Trinity, and it's the first in the hierarchy of divine truths. And so it will say that to understand something about the Trinity. Uh, as remote and inaccessible as in the end it might be, is to let it shed light upon the other mysteries of our faith. But you can take a
2: step back, right, and say the persons of the Trinity communicate with each other in certain ways.
1: Well, that's that's, uh, where we're going to start then. So if we can understand how these persons communicate with each other, this will give some insight to how the Church communicates with her words today. So tell that story from Aquinas about God thinks of himself and he begets the Son. Oh, yeah, well... The, uh, at home, I'm usually sitting around in my evenings thinking about Aquinas. Um, it started with my daughter asking me about, uh, ultimately about the Trinity. Saying uh, it was after evening prayers, or at some point, she said, "Papa, how many gods do we do we have?" And you said, <laughs> "This <laughs> well, is your she, test." She knew. She knew. Yeah. Uh, well, God the Father is one. God the Son is. One. one one and God the Holy Spirit is one she knew uh, that Jesus was God and God the Father was God but you know how do you how do you explain to she wasn't sure about the Holy Spirit in kind of characteristic uh, Western fashion uh, how do you uh, how do you explain the Trinity to a seven-year-old or a 70 year old for that matter uh, and and what uh, relying on um, this is actually uh, maybe it's Aquinas it was uh, this book Frank Sheed uh, theology and and theology and sanity. He gives this this uh, analogy that, you know, each of us has a thought or an image or an idea of what we're like, right? And that uh, thought or image or idea can be very close or, I mean, it can be really far off, you know, if I think I'm Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Uh, but even when all of my faculties are working well, that thought or image or idea that I do have of myself is ne- is still not the same as the reality, all right? Well, when God the Father... the When God the Father has a thought or an image or uh, an idea of himself, it's not defective like mine is of myself. The thought that he has of himself is perfect. And the tradition has used uh, a couple of terms to identify this. And the one is son, and the other is word. That the second person of the Trinity is the word of the Father. So it's his, who he is, is is to be the word. And at the the beginning of St. John's Gospel... Which is called, what's that called, Jesse?
0: Um, the, I'm just, I would say the beginning of the gospel. I think you said it right. It's the
1: prologos. Pro the prologos. The prologue. The prologue. Yeah, the prologue. That's what I, that's right. I mean, really that's what yeah. I was saying. I cut you off, but you were about to say yeah. that. The, the, the Greek word for, for word is logos, which can mean word, but also reason or ground of, of being. I think. Ordering principle. Right. Okay. And so in the prologos, But I mean, literally, we use the word literally trillions of times a day incorrectly. But this would be literally... literally All right, what are you saying here, Chris? (laughs) Literally, it is a literal prologue. It's in favor of the Logos because it begins, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God.
2: And what is the Logos? But
1: God's image of himself. Right. And so the the reality... See, in the end, every word that the mystical mystical body speaks in her liturgy the substance of every word, whether it's in the liturgy of the word strictly speaking, or any type of word that she uses, the content of that is this logos, which, ab- which has abided forever in, in the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. Right? And so if you once we know that about the Trinity, then the rest of the economy of salvation starts to make sense.
0: So this is when your seven-year-old daughter started.
1: Yeah, she I'm was asleep God. by this point. Yeah, oh, okay, way. got
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, so think of it this way: God has perfect understanding of Himself. He imagines, who, he says to Himself, "Who am I?" He has perfect image of Himself in His mind, but He's also perfect act, right? So He, He can't just think and let it sit there. It, it comes out in a sort of um, creative way, and He begets the Son, and so the Son is the perfect image of Himself because of His perfect thought of Himself, and of course He loves Himself perfectly, and so this new Son is begotten. He loves Himself in the Son and the holy spirit is this person a personification of that love and so suddenly you have a community that comes because the word was spoken who am i i'm god boom suddenly there's another one uh, who's the same who's exactly the same they share the same existence
0: is it uh, i i know uh, i might be tripping you up here but is it in, is don't it, do or, it is it ordinal in that way in that first was because i mean we're
2: Right, well, there's no there's no father without the son. This is before time began. So in the beginning was the word, which is very interesting because you think God would think himself, and then in linear time, then he would think himself, and the son would come, but in the beginning was the word. So, so he's so just cloning this. himself.
0: When he thinks of himself, there's well, a clone. It's not if a that clone.
2: happened to me,
1: it'd be ridiculous. Well, certainly no temporal succession. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that's, what, that's what I was...
0: Yeah, it's
2: not now. linear in time. No. It's so instantaneous and so infinitely that way. That it's one of those mysteries. You know, How could there be a father without the son, and yet him still be begotten?
1: But we can talk about time now because at we said before that as a person is or as a being is in itself so does it act outside of itself and we see in the very first verses of uh uh, the book of genesis that in the beginning when god god the father perhaps created heaven and earth and earth was uh dark uh was was dark and formless and a mighty wind uh, a ruah a a, a geist a spirit uh, over Mm -hmm. the water and then god said the word and so this 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 trinity who is kind of this uh, eternal dialogue of love between persons as that trinity is in itself so does it act outside of itself through speaking so how did god create the world through a word because that's how he is in inside of himself he's this this dialogos this speaking across there's an intentional act that nonetheless
2: then impresses that order on the thing that it's, that's being discussed makes real that which is spoken
0: I, I gotta be honest i never really knew what that meant when it's in the beginning was the word and the word was with god like i had, mm. i mean I, I i mean i understand at the service level and all that but this all makes that a lot more right. clear so
2: john is talking about the eternity and the divinity of christ that's mm-hmm. that's his goal here
1: yeah but all of us then that the um There's a beautiful document by Pope Benedict XVI, which followed the the year of St. Paul, which was, uh, and there was a synod as well on the Word of God and the life and mission of the church. And this uh, document is called, I think it's called Verbum Domini. Is that right, Dennis? Yes. Yeah, I think it is. The Word of God. The Word of God, yes. And he he has some some beautiful reflections uh, in there that, and one of them, I think it's citing St. Bonaventure that everything that's created is a Word of God because it echoes God, it speaks of God. Right. And so it's, it's Psalm 19, I think, isn't it right, Dennis, about uh, the heavens declare the glory of God? Uh, why, yes. Day in day, make known the message, uh, no speech, no word, no voice is heard, yet their, their word extends to the end of the earth. And so all of creation, in fact, made by the word, sounds like the word, and proclaims the word. And makes real that which it says. Mm, yeah. And even the, the, the pinnacle of visible creation, in fact, is, is us. And we've had occasion to say this before, I think, in the podcast that, uh, you know, we're called uh, uh, homo sapiens because we are the wise ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, There's a a Catholic author named Walker Percy who says maybe because we're more often foolish than we are wise. So maybe that's not the right way to identify us. But what is really you specific our species, that is, is that we are language users so that we are more properly called homoloquins. We are the speaking animals. Uh, so, you know, it's an, it's an our, our uh, being, too, to, to echo the, the word uh, by which we were made. We get to uh, 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 original sin, which consists of not listening to the word. God told us uh, what to do, and our first parents listened to the father of lies. And, the disorder principle in place of the order principle. Yeah, and their sin is ultimately what led to their disorder is disobedience. The, the word of word is audio, which means to hear, to listen to. They did not listen. So they're made by a word, they resound with the word, they sin against the word, and this is what the sin consists of. And think of the power
2: of a word. You know, just think of some kid being bullied on the playground and some, somebody's carrying a few extra pounds and they say, you're fat, you're no good, and suddenly it's a few sound waves in the air and they're pierced to the heart. I, I'm no good, these people hate me. There's an effectiveness to word that's being spoken there. And then take it to say the, the liturgical realm and the priest says, this is my body. That's That word is making real that which it says. Or the, or the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, right? It's, it's just been spoken, and it's been made effective in the liturgical situation. You know, there's a notion in, um, it comes from Judaism called anemnesis. Some people say anemnesis, but it means the making real by remembering. So I can remember something I did yesterday. It's not going to be real again. But in, in this Christian sacramental sense, you say the words, this is my body because Christ said them. Years ago, and you're making real again that reality of transforming the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ through the speaking of the words. The priest is speaking Christ's words over them, and they're effective. They actually do something. And he also instructed
1: about. us to remember, right? That was part of do that. this in memory right. of me. So the, do the word is anamnesis. Do this as an anamnesis of me. Right in fact. Uh, But, you know, when we were talking about signs and symbols in the last podcast and how uh, sacraments are efficacious signs, they do what they say they're going to do. This is what Dennis is, you know, we're getting at, is the words the church uses are filled with power and filled with substance. Um, You know, a rose by any other name smells as well. We don't quite buy into all that. You know, for us, the words uh, are loaded. It matters how they sound because connected to them, correlative to them is the word uh, which is ultimately Jesus Himself, and you know, and if our if our if we get back to the, the 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 pedagogy of salvation for a moment, if our sin consisted in not listening, you know, imagine just fast forward a little bit about the beautiful the beauty of the uh, of our Redeemer. We ended up being saved by a word, mm-hmm. and in the end, uh, his saving act was uh, perfect listening, perfect obedience to the Father, and this is what reverses and restores our, uh, our, our original state and makes it even better. And we are to become, you know, this is what we can do is you know, the, the, church is this, uh, is the, uh, Ecclesia loquent She's the speaking church, you know, because the word is her head and the, the members of the speaking church, this is a great term by uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, we are called to logify or logicize our existence. This is Pope Benedict. Logosize your existence. What does it mean to get logosized? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, the logos is the word. When you hear that word, just like when you eat the Eucharist, you become the Eucharist. When you hear the divine word spoken in the sacramental language of the church, you become worded. You become logosized. You start to echo that uh, word which made you. Pope Benedict will describe, well, St. Paul, but he loves this line from Romans, I think it's 12, 1, about um about logical worship word based worship the sacrifice of the word and so when we come together to worship it, the the stuff of our of the language the church uses is this logos and you know the language of the liturgy is quite precise
2: because it, we've been talking the last few weeks about the mystical body being the head and the members acting as Christ and so the liturgical words are the voice of Christ to God the Father and so the church takes these choices of words very carefully. This is why you can't just change the words from the missal anytime you want because you think this word works better than that. It's the words of the bride, the church, headed by Christ to God the Father. And so it's going to ha- it's a love song between the Father and the Son and includes us. And so those words matter. If you want them to be effa- effective or efficacious, then you say the very precise things. And if you want them to show the heavenly love between Father and the Son, then you would put them in a way that's easy, poetic, beautiful, lovely and conveys all that rich information that you want it to convey as well.
1: Yeah, it should give us a great respect for the language of the liturgy. I mean, how could you find a human language that could convey the divine dialogue of love between the persons of the Trinity. I mean, who comes up, who coins a language uh, like that? Well, the Church has been developing this language for for centuries uh, to create this sort of liturgical lexicon that is an appropriate sacramental expression to make present the unseen reality, which is the word which existed in the beginning.
0: Is that why, even though the liturgy is in the vernacular in most in uh, most instances, it still sounds like like phrases and, and words that I wouldn't normally use in my everyday language. Is that kind of what you're talking
1: about there? Uh, it is, because the, it, it sounds different because it is different, because c- the reality is different. When you and I talk over the lunch table or something like that, we're engaged in a different type of reality than uh, becoming co-speakers along with the eternal word, addressing you know God the Father, there's a, maybe along these lines, too. I think this is Cardinal Ratzinger, too. The, the, the type of speech that the church uses is called uh, a drunken speech. Drunken speech. Like speaking in tongues. Uh, <laughs> sort, of. sort of. You know how he uses, the, he uses this term about the church is a new glossolalia. She's the new tongue. Because she speaks this, this new language. But what he means by drunken speech, or in another place, I think he says sober inebriation, is that the speech part or the sobriety part signifies the logos, the logical, the sun. But the drunken part uh, uh, or the inebriation part is the spirited part, you know, which we so, you know, even now you stop by the spirit store on the way home, you get, you get alcohol. Right? But even spirits, is, is ultimately the spirit, and so it's it's the spirit filling the lungs of the church is the Holy Spirit. That's the air that speaks the word and uh, of, of love to God the Father. Now that's not any ordinary discourse like we're having over the lunch table. Exactly. That's something yeah. very different. It just I don't use re- my words that intentionally. <laughs> Maybe I should. But if you You're, propose to your girlfriend and you
2: say, why don't we combine our genetic material, co our economics and live together until we, you know, decompose. That's not love. That's practical language, you know. So you'll, you'll take it up uh, a notch and say, why don't we unite our fortunes? We'll uh, unite our hearts. We'll uh, bring forth a new sun, s- sunrise or something like that. It's poetic language. It's not literal. It's not factual. Even though it contains the same truth, it elevates to uh, a kind of um, inebriated speech.
1: So it's, so it's a, just a higher standard, a higher level. Yeah, it remains, uh, it remains a human language, but one that is uh, in some ways out of this world. It's in this world, but it's tending out of this world. It's supposed to sound like, uh, we've made the analogy before, it doesn't sound like man-on-the-street language in, uh, in Mundelein. It sounds like man-on-the-street, heavenly Jerusalem. It's human, but it's existing in a perfected world. This is why the liturgy is
2: always called public and solemn. It's public because everybody needs to know what's being said. So you can't just use your local slang from your fraternity house or some words you know you invented with your sister as a kid. No one will know what that means. But solemnity means not that it's dull or boring or, or uptight, but that it has the importance of what you're doing. The words correspond to the infinite importance of addressing God the Father and being glorified. Now I want to make sure that we get to the
0: actions part of this too because I assume that there's some very similar uh in in the same vein that you know w- words and actions and also like we were talking about signs and symbols
1: yeah may, maybe this would be a suitable example to sp- give to speak about words but also to transition into uh into actions is uh, you know when you see another person uh at the beginning of the day you say good morning and the other person says good morning how are you doing something like that well the church when she comes together to worship She remains uh, with her feet on the ground. She remains human. And so she says, good morning. And people say, good morning. That's your spirit. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're getting ahead of it here. (laughs) But so she does very human things in human language. But she doesn't say, good morning, everybody. Hey, good morning, Father. She says, good morning. And we reply to Father, but in a way that is human, but at the same time elevated to to a sacramental and divine sphere. So Father will say, not good morning, everybody, but uh, the Lord be with you and will respond, in with your spirit. So I'm, the church, I'm sorry I jumped the gun there. I really good, did not know that's where you were going.
2: It's no, called active listening, my friend. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: great. So, but what does it mean then? Why, do, why shouldn't Father just say, good morning, everybody? But he says, the Lord be with you, you know, after he makes the sign of the cross. Uh, Father Martis reminded us that this phrase, at least, appears in uh, uh, the book of Ruth, where Boaz says to his harvesters, the Lord be with you. Well, there's a lot of backstory in this wonderful book of Ruth, uh, where uh, it begins with uh, uh, Naomi and her husband and their two sons. They move from Bethlehem, I think it is, across the Jordan River to the east to Moab. And while they're there, the two sons, uh, I'll try to make this fast, the two sons marry two nice uh, Moabite girls, uh, Orpah, I think it is, and Ruth. And eventually, all of the, the men die, and Naomi says she's going to go back home, because for this reason, uh, uh, a famine had struck the land in Moab, but word came to Naomi that the Lord had visited his people back in her hometown of Bethlehem and given them food to eat. Okay, well, Bethlehem itself means...
2: House of bread.
1: House of bread, and this is a prefigurement of a future visiting of the Lord to his people in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem yeah. And so she's going to go back. Orpah decides to stay. Uh, Ruth decides so she'll go back with... Naomi. So to get from Moab back to the Promised Land, one of the there's one obstacle that they need to uh, uh, to get through, and that is the waters of the Jordan River. Okay, so this is a this is a, a, a person named Yeshua once crossed the Jordan River with the chosen people into a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to do something here again. A little bit later, another Yeshua, Jesus, will pass through the waters of the Jordan and uh, carry on his uh, Paschal sacrifice. But they get back to Bethlehem, and uh, Ruth goes to glean in uh, Boaz's fields. Okay, So the harvesters are coming through, and she's picking up what, the, what they missed in the harvest. Boaz shows up, and he says to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. And then he sa- notices this girl who's gleaning in his fields, and he says, Who is this who's picking up uh, food in my field? And they explain who it is. He has heard of her fidelity to Naomi. He invites her to join him and the harvesters. Uh, at the lunch table. And and the book of Ruth says that she received so much food that she had to carry it home with her, the excess, afterwards. So this man from Bethlehem gives food in such abundance that enough remains that needs to be gathered up into baskets. I've heard that before. (laughs) We have, (laughs) right? So when Father says to you, the Lord be with you, there's so much... um, It's a human greeting, but it's so much more than that. It should signify and evoke and make present uh, the abundance of food for us being uh, on a journey. You know, Naomi wasn't uh, uh, from Bethlehem. She was a pilgrim. She was a stranger like we are in this land. All of these thoughts are the Paschal Mystery, Baptism, Eucharist. All of this should be evoked by this simple term, the Lord be with you. Similarly, by our response and with your spirit, you might uh, think of the story in uh, the book of Exodus where Moses has so much work to do, and he begs the Lord to send him helpers, and so the Lord takes some of the spirit, which is on Moses, and places it on 70 elders, and now they can speak with the authority and in the person of Moses. Which we again see later. Which, uh, well, very true, when Jesus yes. gives his authority to the apostles, which is now passed on through the bishops to uh, those who have received the sacrament of holy orders, when we say to the bishop or the priest or the deacon and with your spirit we're signifying that this person is standing in a special way in the place of christ and so it's a human back and forth and greeting but it means so much more than that
2: even if you take a step back before the greeting you make the sign of the cross at the beginning of mass we had a professor here years ago and i asked him why do we say in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit because i, I just
0: I, say name of the i just say father son holy spirit. father son
2: holy spirit right which is not efficacious well who knows how what's efficacious and it's when not saying it right I said, you can't claim the authority of the Father. You can't say, in the name of the Father, I pray. You can claim the authority of the Son because you're baptized. And he said, no, 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 you're not praying in the name of the Father. By saying these words, you're recalling and making active and present again the virtues and the graces of your baptism because you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when you say the sign of the cross and, and put the shape of the cross across your body, you are activating all the powers of soul and grace that were given in your baptism, and then you can enter into all those mysteries that will come later, and it's the words being spoken that activate So it's it's the words and the actions that allow, it's
0: kind of like a flashback is what you're saying. So I'm putting... But it's
2: making real again that which was done a long time ago.
1: Excellent. And it's not just a flashback, it's a flash forward too. And a flash present. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The anamnesis is making present what happened uh, in the life of Christ, but we're not just backward-looking, we're forward-looking to, to the heavenly eschaton. All those things that Jesus did uh, 2,000 years ago are taken up into eternity, and that's why they're made present to us now. So our liturgy is not some historical reenactment. It's a participation in that which is uh, above us and before us in heaven. Right, and that's what they'll say,
2: that history, uh, future, and the past all conflate into the present in the liturgy, because all the precursors of Christ come forward, temple, victim, sacrifice, Offerings, prophets—that's all fulfilled in Christ. All the heavenly future we're going to be with heaven in heaven with God someday. Well, it's happening in a real way, sacramental way. It comes backward, and that moment of the liturgy is where heaven and earth kiss. It's where the past and the future meet, and so it's always outside of time, but also happening in time.
1: But maybe let's say something you said. Step back, so that bring, that brings up uh, actions and gestures and postures and all of the rest. Maybe if we associate this with the. Uh, this dialogue that the priest and assembly have at the beginning of mass, uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal says that the priest stands. Okay? So when he gets to the chair, I mean, we can get to this later when we talk about art and architecture and sacred furnishings. You know, he doesn't go stand at the ambo or at the altar or by the organ or in the front pew or uh, anywhere. He stands at the chair because that has significance like everything. But again, he goes and he stands there. He doesn't go to the chair and sit down right away because that would signify something else. He doesn't go to the chair and kneel that would signify something else he goes to the chair and he stands because standing signifies something that is being made present to us in the here and now right so we're um i mean again when you look at our mystagogical categories whether those are creation or culture or the old covenant or christ or in heaven the posture of standing you know, brings with it a, a whole variety of significance. So standing, culturally speaking, whether you're a Catholic or an atheist or an agnostic or whatever it is, standing signifies readiness, attention, ready to work, respect, all of these things. And that is in part what the priest is signifying or sacramentalizing by his posture. Can you imagine if at the beginning of mass he just got up there, and he just kinda of slumped down in the chair? oh, was my fifth mass I've had to to say this week. That would say something to the people that the church doesn't want said. The priest goes, he stands at the chair in the person of Jesus Christ, the head, and he begins the mass and he addresses the the people in the person of Christ, the head, with the sign of the cross and the greeting. The posture and the action helps to symbolize this.
2: And a good example of that, and I, I don't have a footnote for this, but I was told about the priest bowing at the words of consecration. And the priest, it says right there is to lean over and sort of breathe across the uh, chalice. And in the um, ancient world, if a messenger had a message from a king, if he showed up and said, hey, you should go to war, but he, and he was standing up, he himself would be saying that. But if he leaned over, he would, that would be a sign that he was speaking the words of the king who sent him. Whoa! That's pretty deep. So to bend over means I'm not speaking my own words, but speaking the words of the the true King, who for whom I'm a messenger. So the priest bends over, and then you know, ah, that's the words of Christ, Uh, speaking across the the wine. Just as uh, Chris said that the Holy Spirit, God breathed across the waters and created something new, and so to breathe across the wine and then to make it become something else, there's it's just a simple little bow and a simple little move, but that gesture, once you understand
1: it, has a lot of meaning. There's other breathing at the, at the chrism mass when the bishop oh, the, consecrates. Oh, yeah. the. Uh, there's three oils at the chrism mass, the oil of catechumens, the oil of the sick. But when he consecrates the sacred chrism, it actually says that he breathes uh, onto or over the opening of the vessel. And I don't know if the rubric says this anymore or not, but sometimes you see the bishop kind of breathe in the sign of the cross three times over the vessel as well. So breathing is another one of these actions that uh, signifies... You know, I suppose the Holy Spirit, the, the breath of new life, okay? um, all of these actions, whether it's, I mean, th- think of the, the very many things we do. Sometimes it's said, uh, oh, I suppose kind of disparagingly, you know, about Catholic aerobics or, you know, you you, you sit, sit down, kneels down, oh, you walk around in a circle, you do all of this stuff. Um, but again, it's uh, we have to do this because we are we're, we're incarnate spirits. I mean, our internal is uh, is expressed through our bodies, but not simply that. It's it's uh, fostered those through these bodily postures and gestures. The internal sentiment isn't only expressed; it becomes uh, uh, fostered as well. You mentioned about bowing before, so very often that is a, a symbol, uh, whether it's uh, on the human plane or the, the supernatural plane, a symbol of, of, of humility, uh, of reminding ourselves of, that we're not God, for example. And so, uh, again, in the spirit of the liturgy, so many, there's so many gems in that book. Uh, Pope Francis uh, uh, recounts some desert father who had this encounter with the devil. And the unique feature of this being, the devil who was in front of them, is that he had no knees. He was incapable of kneeling. And so when we kneel, I mean, again, thats it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a sacramental expression of our humility, of how we uh, beseech God, how we pray to God, uh, how we uh, bend in uh, adoration before him. We need to express the internal through bodily actions. And the kiss of peace is a good example as well. In, before the
2: Reformed uh, liturgy came out, the priest would kiss the altar and then go and kiss the other ministers, or the, the liturgical kiss. In other words, I'm receiving this peace from Christ, and then I'm handing it on to the next person, and then I would hand it on to the next person. And so it's like lighting the candles uh, at the Easter vigil. The light is di- divided but undimmed, and the light passes. So the peace would go from one to the other, and it's through the gesture that it's handed on from one to the next.
0: Uh, I, I just wanted to go back. You said in the spirit of the, of the liturgy, Pope Francis. Did you mean Pope Francis? Oh, Patrick? I did. I'm sorry. Okay. Pope, I, I just don't. want to make sure that we have that have yeah, that right. We'll be getting emails otherwise. I'm sure. I know we would. Get, we're getting emails anyway, probably. Right.
2: Um, but the whole question of gesture is not that hard. You come home from work and kiss your wife and hug your children. That's simply oh, I saying. do that. Yeah, remember to do that tonight. <laughs> uh, that means I love you, right? I missed you. I value you. It, it, it's so simple we don't even think about it, but that's how this information is conveyed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they, uh, maybe one of the most memorable lines of the Second Vatican Council, certainly one that John Paul II used a lot, was that, uh, I paraphrase, Jesus not only came to reveal God to man, but man to himself, meaning he taught us, and in, 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 in now he continues his work in the mystical body and in the liturgy. The liturgy teaches us and uses so much of our humanity. It doesn't ask us to check our humanity at the door. So these things you mentioned, Dennis, are, are very human elements that we do. Um, they're not peculiar necessarily to Catholics, at least not in all cases. They come from a very natural and human substratum, and they they become perfected, though they become heavenly.
0: That's that's what I like about all of this, is because it can be really easy to get super, you know, um, in your head about you know the divinity of Christ and how heavenly all of this is. But but uh, and I mentioned this before. You know, who am I in, in all of this? But but that's not what God does for us. God makes these you know, very natural and human things that we experience, and he, and he
2: breathes into them
0: uh, new meaning and new life. Right. What, I think that's great.
2: One way to think about it is we have in residue what we're supposed to have in fullness, right? So we say, oh, we're going to do things on earth the way they're in heaven, but actually we're already doing on earth a small participation in what we're supposed to be doing, and what we're doing is growing, growing, growing into the fullness by experiencing them at the high sort of divine level, so that that becomes our norm. If you can't lift five-pound uh, dumbbells at the beginning, you start with 2 and a halfs, and then you move up to fives and tens and fifteens. Instead of saying, I can only lift five pounds, you can say, five is all that I have left of what I used to be able to do, which is 100 pounds, and I'll work my way back up. And uh, in the doing, you become what you are meant to be. Excellent,
0: excellent. Well, uh, I, I really look forward to, in the future, kind of maybe You know, diving into some of these actual actions and talking about them in more detail, um, which we will do in the future. But for right now, I think it's time for another email. Yeah, we have a good
2: one today. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: All right, we have our Liturgy Guys question of the week right here from Anonymous. Anonymous says, why has Cardinal Sarah, the Prefect for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments, uh, calling for a return to worship ad orientum?
1: A lot of people are asking that question. He's uh, Cardinal Sarah, or Sarah, I'm not sure which it is. Did I say it wrong? Well, I don't know.
2: People usually say Sarah.
1: Sarah? Sarah? Cardinal Sarah on a a few occasions uh, over the past year has... Uh, suggested a return to uh, ad orientem, which means literally uh, to the east. Even though, uh, as he says, and many others say, it's not. Uh, it may be a liturgical east if your parish is, fa- if your church building is facing a different uh, direction. Uh, why is he calling for this? Um, it seems that what uh, is really underlying his call is to help us to refocus on uh, Christ. He has this. Uh, he he says uh, repeatedly that he fears. The liturgy is becoming uh, uh, too human, uh, source of, akin to a type of entertainment or fraternal gathering, and that uh, the, the, the center, which is Christ, uh, is at risk of being overshadowed, if can put it that way. And so what he sees is the ad orientum, the, the, the turning of the priest and the people to the same direction, ideally to the, to the orient, the coming of the sun, will help to uh, sacramentalize, to express, and then to foster in us that, we are people uh, on the move to encounter the true Son, the Son of God, who is Christ. And it's interesting
2: to note that Cardinal Sarah was appointed by Pope Francis, right? So this is, he's not in a holdover from Pope Benedict's day. And of course, as Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict was very interested in this question. He warned against liturgy becoming the self-enclosed circle, where the priest talked to the people, and the pre- people talked to each other, and the people talked to the priest, and they kind of forgot that they were one mystical body addressing the Father, which is a very interesting thing many people don't remember or don't think of, is that all almost all the prayers of the Mass are addressed to the Father through Jesus Christ. Generally speaking, we don't pray to Jesus in the prayer of the Mass. We, we pray to the Father. So it's the priest as head, the people as members, acting as one body, and those prayers are addressed to the Father. So if the head's talking to the body as opposed to the head and the body together talking to the Father, uh, sometimes it doesn't make that um, reality, the mystical body, as clear.
1: Yeah, He makes that distinction, though. It is appropriate sometimes for the head to talk to the body, for the priest to talk to the people. And indeed, the priest does do this. But at other times in the liturgy, the priest is serving not to speak to the body, but with the body, through the head, to God the Father. And so this orientation, uh, this change in direction, um, it, it, it's not... one way all the time. And this is even kind of reflected in uh, uh, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy and the documents that have uh, uh, succeeded it. It's true, as uh, the Cardinal says, the Constitution itself doesn't, uh, at least doesn't speak about uh, Mass facing the people. But then it was only eight months later that the first a document about how to apply these principles does say that very thing and this would be a document that would have come out of his office or whatever its predecessor was and on the books today we have both mm, approaches there on the one hand it says in the general instruction that the altar should be freestanding so that the priest can face the people which is desirable whenever possible this is from this 1964 document but on the other hand there are places in the order of mass where it says that the priest turns around and he faces the people and he says, the Lord be with you, for example. So it kind of envisions that he is uh, facing uh, a different direction uh, at the same time. So I think this will remain a little bit of a confusing uh, discussion, but if it is a discussion, it should take place within the context of the principles that uh, the constitution on the liturgy have given us.
2: Right. And some years ago, somebody submitted a dubium, which is a question, to uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship and said, are we allowed to say mass ad orientem, which is what people often call the priests back to the people, but he's really looking toward the Father. And the answer was, whether you say Mass facing the people or ad orientem, you're always saying Mass ad deum, which is to God. And I think what Cardinal Sarah was trying to say is, the Mass is not said to each other, but the Mass is said to the Father. And that's the thing to keep in mind theologically, whichever way you're facing in the rite itself.
0: And the liturgical, I guess, norm that we have here in the States, that's called Versus Populus, right? Is that what it's called?
2: Versus populum, yeah. Versus populum, sort of toward the people, but not to the people. The mass is not said to the people. They just thought if you turned the priest around, the people would be able to see more clearly what was actually happening in the rite
1: itself, and yeah, go- aid their participation. Yeah, good things. Being able to see what's happening at the altar, hear what the priest is saying, uh, or I mean, those are good ways. There are ways that uh, help people to participate, but something is lost. Uh, I mean, uh, something can be lost. Uh, uh, while other things are gained in both uh, both the orientations, so, so both are permissible.
0: Um, and Cardinal Seurat is just commenting on uh, ad orientum.
1: Yeah, well, he he's encouraging it because he sees that uh, see, he sees it as a sacramental expression that will help to put God back to the center. Excellent. The, the church isn't a. Enclosed uh, circle speaking to itself, but it's it's an arc. It's we sit in a nave and we're sailing into the rising of the sun, who was Christ.
0: Excellent. Uh, that is our question for the week. If you want to submit a question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless.
2: The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the Church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.